BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey friends, thanks for joining a podcast. I want to tell you about something really new and exciting called patreon.com slash BP show. It's a great way to get uh, exclusive interviews with newsmakers, voicemails, personalized videos, political commentary, and early access to a special podcast called The Making of Bernie Sanders. Go to patreon.com slash BP show, patreon.com slash BP show. Giving you everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show, live at youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Don't look now, but it's back. Yep, they're trying again to repeal Obamacare. We thought that was dead. Uh Uh-uh, it is back from the grave. What do you say? Hello, everybody. Tuesday, September 19. Uh, Great to see you today. Thank you so much for joining us. Wherever you happen to be in this great land of ours, uh, we're there with you. You are here with us. It's a great partnership, and let's get off and running to bring you up to date on the news of the day. Donald Trump up at the U.N. yesterday, starting a two- or three-day visit up there. He gives his big speech to the General Assembly today. Uh, And it was a Donald Trump who was rather a muted Donald Trump, uh, actually, uh, Um, Yeah, he went out of his way to slam the U.N. a little bit, but for the most part, uh, he seemed to say, let's all get together, let's all work together, uh, let's make the United Nations uh, great again. Uh, Meanwhile, even though Congress is out of town this week, there's still a lot going here on. The House is out for the entire week, the Senate is for a couple of days, but they are up to no good trying to ram through a bill, they brought it back from the dead, to repeal Obamacare, a bill that is even worse than the first attempt to repeal Obamacare, would put millions more people uh, out of health insurance altogether, would take money away from the states that expanded Medicare and give it to the states that did not. It's a horrible bill. And John McCain now says, well, he's not sure. Maybe he will vote for this because his governor likes it. We'll get into that. All the rest of the news of the day with you. Look forward to hearing from you. Send us your comments on Twitter on the news of the day at BP Show on Twitter at BP Show. But first, this is the full court Benson. Hello, hello. Hello, hello. Just a couple of other stories for you on this Tuesday morning. We begin with some major news about another hurricane in the Caribbean. Hurricane Maria has escalated quickly into a Category 5 storm just within the last few hours, in fact. Yeah. Because before dawn this morning, it was a Category 4 until it ramped up pretty quickly to reach the status of 5. Hurricane Maria currently raging over the island of Dominica, and one official has already commented on what they believe is widespread devastation on that island. 
Uh, Maria had maximum sustained winds of 160 miles an hour. Hurricane warnings posted for the U.S. and British Virgin Islands, Puerto Rico, Guadalupe, Dominica, St. Kitts, Nevis, and Montserrat. So this is just awful. Span the last couple of weeks, these hurricanes that continue to wreak havoc, specifically in the Caribbean. Uh, yeah, and Puerto Rico right in the direct line for for a direct hit. Uh-huh. Yeah, no, no real um, indication on whether or not this will have any effect on the United States. Um, the last the mainland, trajectory I, I saw would have it going out kind of following Jose off the coast, but yeah, who yeah, knows? Yeah, Jose's still having some uh, <laughs> moderate effects, uh, specifically in the northeast United States uh, off the Atlantic Ocean there. Hey, some big news. If uh, you remember shopping at Toys R Us as a kid, the company uh, has announced that they will be filing for bankruptcy. Uh, they did not uh, immediately address the fate of their 65,000 employees and 1,700 stores. Toys R Us has, says, uh, has said that they will remain open through the Christmas holidays. So if you wanted to do one last run at Toys R Us or your holiday shopping, they will stay open. Uh, but yeah, Toys R Us filing for bankruptcy. God, hard to believe that Toys R Us, we'd be be able to survive without a Toys R Us. Well, yeah, a, lot, a lot of people saying, obviously, Amazon, a, uh, a big contributor as to why Toys yeah, R Us yeah. not able to survive in this day and age. Hey, finally, but, one- but those Toys R Us stores were fun stores. The one in New York, particularly, the one in Times Square, which I don't think is there anymore, was just... A, a, a playland. I mean, for yeah. Oh, I still remember going to Toys R Us as a kid. I mean, it was. It's honestly one of the highlights of the holiday season. Picking out which toys you want for Christmas, and no more. No, I thought Santa did that. Bill, grow up, man. But you helped Santa. Huh? On your radio, on TV, and online, this is The Bill Press Show. Hey, hello, hello on a Tuesday. It is The Bill Press Show. Welcome. Welcome to the program here, Tuesday, September 19. America is listening. America is watching for all the news of the day from your progressive point of view. Here we are. We deliver and you receive, and then we receive your comments in return. Great to see you today. Thanks for joining us. So much to talk about, so much you're going to want to talk about as we come to you on YouTube, youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Looking at you, of course, on Free Speech TV and uh, joining you for all the fun out in the Chicago area on WCPT. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome. Uh, to the program, Indiana Talks joining us as well at in out in the Indianapolis area, uh, and we are starting out at our studio right here in Washington D.C. Uh, and our studio on Capitol Hill. Don't forget our podcast, folks. We always tell you about the podcast because we know uh, you can't catch all the show necessarily all two hours every morning, uh, but the podcast is there for you for all of your friends. Tell them about it. Go to BillPressShow.com or to iTunes or iHeartRadio, wherever you get your podcast. Uh, we are there. You can watch, uh, listen to any part of the show or the entire show. And don't forget, as Jamie says, to rate and review. Yes, indeed. Uh, the news this morning, first on the weather front. Uh, yes, again, yet another hurricane, Hurricane Maria. Uh, Category 5 now coming through the... Uh, 
the Caribbean over the uh, like a direct hit on the island of Dominica, small one of the smaller islands, of course, but headed right toward Puerto Rico. Winds max winds so far at 160 miles an hour. Uh, it is just like nonstop devastation in the Caribbean on top of Hurricane Harvey coming through and on top, of course, of Hurricane Irma coming through. Uh, Hurricane Jose, meanwhile, uh, heading up the east coast of the United States, well offshore, causing some high tides uh, and high surf, but no damage to, to land. We're keeping our eye on that. Uh, yep, the hurricane hit New York yesterday, too, and the person of Donald Trump. Wouldn't you know it that the first thing that Donald Trump would do when he gets to the United Nations is he would brag about Trump Tower, which is right across the street. Yeah, the United Nations is great because he's got a great tower across the street. I actually saw great potential right across the street, to be honest with you, and it was only for the reason that the United Nations was here that that turned out to be such a successful project. <laughs> Classic Donald Trump. First words of his, out of his mouth, bragging about the, the, uh, his building uh, across the street from the uh, United Nations, which, of course, is a way of telling everybody there, if you really want to be my friend, you'll stay at my place across the street. This was during a serious talk that he was giving yeah, about yeah. reforms that were necessary at the United Nations, <laughs> scolding the other nation's leaders, right. and then saying, by the way, you want a real example of success? Yeah. Look at that mm-hmm. that model of capitalism across the street yeah. that I created. Yeah. Look at me. Look at me and look at my tower uh, right across the street. Yes, that's it. Uh, and as Jamie indicated, he did start off. He was somewhat muted. I mean, it was not like the bombastic Donald Trump. But still, uh, his opening words were uh, words critical of the United Nations, not congratulating the United Nations for the role that has played since 1945 uh, in many hotspots around the world, and overall uh, just providing a forum where nations could get together and settle their differences without resorting to warfare. Uh, Hasn't always worked, but uh, we're certainly a hell of a lot better off because it's there. Um, Donald Trump says, no, we need to change it now. We need to make sure that everybody is, every nation is paying its fair share. We share the burden, he says. We must ensure that no one and no member state shoulders a disproportionate share of the burden. And that's militarily or financially. Right. So uh, it's his sort of way of saying the United States is paying too much. Uh, we don't want to pay as much as we do, kind of like what he said. about. Haven't heard that one before. No, exactly what he said about NATO. Uh, and he did say uh, for his hat for the United Nations, it's not make the United Nations great again because he says the United Nations has never been great. But it will be now that he's willing to uh, be part of uh, building a better United Nations. In recent years, the United Nations has not reached its full potential uh-uh, right. because of uh-uh. bureaucracy and mismanagement. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, too much bureaucracy, too much mismanagement. So the first words of his mouth, your bureaucracy is too big. You know, look, not that there's room, for, not, not that there's no room for improvement in the U.N. Of course there is, just like there is in any one of the departments or agencies of the United States federal government. But to have that be your first words that the United Nations kind of got off to a sour start for Donald Trump.
Uh, then, of course, uh, he went on to meet with uh, uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu from, uh, from uh, of Israel, uh, saying that um, nobody thinks that peace is possible in the Middle East, but you watch. I'm going to deliver it. I think there's a good chance that it could happen. Most people would say there's no chance whatsoever. I actually think with the capability of, of Bibi and, frankly, the other side, I really think we have a chance. All right. There he is. Yes. Bibi right. and, and the other BB side, too. Yeah, we, we've got a chance. Uh, and he went on to meet with uh, President Emmanuel Macron from France, where Donald Trump really dropped a bomb. Remember, the he went to France for the Bastille Day, July 14th, and the big military parade in Paris, where Donald Trump just got his rocks off, loved seeing all those tanks and all those planes and all those missiles. And so he says, you know what? We need a parade like that right here in Washington, down Pennsylvania Avenue. By the way, in front of the Trump Hotel, of course. This is another way of making money, right? Having a big military parade. Actually, he, this is what he talks about. He's inspired by what he saw in Paris. To a large extent, because of what I witnessed, we may do something like that on July 4th in Washington, down Pennsylvania. I don't know. We're going to have to try and stop it. We had a lot of planes going over. We had a lot of military might. And uh, it was really a beautiful thing to see. Oh, a beautiful thing to see. A lot of planes going over. You can hear the reporters going, what, what, what? A military parade on Pennsylvania Avenue? And Donald Trump says, yeah, we're thinking about July 4th. We're already working on it. We're actually thinking about uh, 4th of July, uh, Pennsylvania Avenue, having a really great parade to show our military strength. You know, we've, uh, we're spending this year $700 billion more than we've ever spent on the military. Yeah, the Senate passed that yesterday. I think the vote was 89 to 9 or something. $700 billion. Ridiculous. More than ever spent in, in, in history. Uh, all of it just going to the Pentagon with no strings attached, basically. And now Donald Trump says, well, let's take about a billion of that and, and stage a military parade down Pennsylvania Avenue, which is the last thing this country, country needs. Yeah, this is what we want. Let's mimic North Korea. I mean, I'm telling you, how many times have I told you? Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un are the same person, right? They have an orgasm when they see a tank, right? I mean, or a, or a bomber. I mean, they, they, it's penis envy is what it is. I mean, I'm telling you, Donald Trump has a small one. You know, a lot of The short, way he acts, the way he talks, it's, right? It's just... A lot of short from Politico was here yesterday, and she brought up, we were talking about Roy Moore and Luther Strange, and she said Roy Moore has a tradition of riding a, riding on horse, right? Yeah, Horseback. Right. right. Uh, the, the day after he wins an election. And I brought up the fact that Donald Trump loves military parades, so why, why isn't Donald Trump supporting Roy Moore? Look at that. Look at that. Just hours after we're talking about the military parades, yeah. right on schedule, Donald Trump announces he's going to have one on July 4th in Washington. But seriously, D. when you think about military, when you think about the leaders standing there, right, watching all these watching all these soldiers march through by and in, in goose step, and then watching all the big missiles go by and all the big tanks go by and all the big trucks go by, what do you think of? You think of the Kremlin? You think of Red Square. You think of Vladimir Putin. They had some military exercise yesterday. Putin's not at the U.N. because he stayed home to watch that. You think of Russia, and you think of North Korea, right? 
I mean, we do have the strongest military by far in the world, by far, right? Um, but we've never been a nation that brags about it. We've never been a nation that feels we have to show off all of our guns and missiles. It's just that there, that it's there. We know it's there, uh, and it's there to protect us. And hopefully, we use it wisely and uh, sparingly. Uh, and we don't just brag about it or show it off. Although, it's like Donald Trump bragging about the size of this, his hotel across the street, um, and once this military parade down Pennsylvania. I, I don't. Uh, you know, he doesn't need. Con- the thing that what's frustrating about this, he could damn do it. He could just damn mm-hmm. do it on his own. He can tell the military, this is what we want. I don't think Congress could stop him. You don't need an act of Congress to have a parade, right? And it's essentially a second inauguration for him, right? Right. I mean, th- that's, that's the only other uh, instance where we have tanks or anything close to it on the street. Well, there were none in the inaugural parade. He had talked about maybe having some. I, Good point. Uh, but it never happened. Uh, I believe that the last time in an inaugural parade there were any military, um, there was any military show of military might was John F. Kennedy. Uh, and actually, after the Persian Gulf War, uh, George W. Bush uh, had some military might in a parade, uh, some some display of the military down Pennsylvania Avenue, uh, Pennsylvania Avenue. But it's not our thing. It's not what the United States does. Bad idea. Bill, by the way, I'd like to announce, uh, yes. I'm happy to announce that I already have July 4th plans for next year. So oh. I'll be on the other side of town. The Boston Red Sox are in town playing the Washington Nationals on July 4th. No. Next year? Kid, so. Next year? Yeah. How do you know that? They, they release the schedule super <laughs> early. I don't know why, but uh, that'll be exciting. I'll, I'll get to avoid the uh, military parade altogether. That'd be a better place to be. Absolutely. Uh, for sure, to watch the Red Sox lose to the Nationals. Oh, thanks, Bill. Uh, yeah, right. By the way, a little, front, uh, a little news on the uh, Russian front, bringing you up to date on, and this is stunning news, and also, uh, again, an indication that the FBI and Robert Mueller uh, continue their investigation into um, potential collusion between the Trump team and uh, Russian officials and also potential obstruction of justice on the part of the United States. And Robert Mueller is a very aggressive prosecutor. What we learned, uh, CNN exclusively learned, uh, reported last night, is that Paul Manafort, um, President Trump's former campaign manager, of course, was wiretapped. Uh, The FBI got a FISA court uh, authorization to wiretap Paul Manafort once. Uh, they, They were very curious as to what they learned, what they heard. This was, by the way, he was wiretapped. Get this. Paul Manafort was wiretapped during the campaign and after the campaign. So, you know, one of the people he was talking to during that time was Donald Trump, probably over and over again. At any rate, they did one wiretap and they learned so much that they went back to the court and said, this is hot stuff. This is um, we're learning a lot of evidence to buttress our case. We need a second wiretap. They got permission for the second wiretap. Senator Jeff Merkley from Oregon uh, last night on CNN with Aaron Burnett talking about how significant this is. 
We know that there was enough concern to get the first wiretap. We know there was enough concern to go back and get a second permission for a wiretap. Right. We know that the FBI has, has broken into his home and in appropriate legal fashion and taken all of the records. That indicates extreme interest, and this now adds to it. Uh, yes, indeed, it does add to this extreme interest. Senator Jeff Merkley, so as we repeat almost every day here, this Russian investigation is real. It is serious. It's not going away. And uh, Robert Mueller is uh, is on the case. I love learning about Robert Mueller's intimidation <laughs> tactics, making it clear yeah. to Manafort when he raided his home that he had a full intention on indicting him. Whether or not that's true, you can tell that this investigation is is all business. Yeah. Robert Mueller knows exactly what he's doing. Uh, just what Jamie is talking about is reported. Uh, it's been reported and it's repeated this morning in the New York Times. The headline is Mueller adopts aggressive tone in Russian Russia inquiry. When they first went to um, Manafort's home, he was in bed asleep. It was pre-dawn. They picked the lock on his front door. They didn't even knock. They picked the lock, stormed into the house, and seized his files, his computer, his laptop, and then said, hey, dude, you're going to be indicted. This is just the beginning. Scared the, you know what? I cannot wait for the movie adaptation of the uh, (laughs) Trump-Russia investigation. Yeah, indeed. Meanwhile, boy, you thought it was dead? Uh Uh-uh. Repeal of Obamacare is back. Uh, And friends and neighbors, this is really scary because uh, so far as we know, uh, so this is legislation introduced by Lindsey Graham from South Carolina and Bill Cassidy from Louisiana, uh, which would bring back. it's, It's another bill to repeal Obamacare. But this one is worse than the first bill. I had dinner last night with Secretary Diana Dooley from California, who is head of the, um, I think it's called the Health and Human Services Agency in California. At any rate, it's the healthcare agency of California for the state of California under Governor Jerry Brown. Uh, And she's here in town to fight this repeal. Uh, It is, she told me, worse, far worse than the original bill that was shot down a couple of months ago, thanks to John McCain and Lisa Col- uh, Susan Collins and Lisa Lisa Murkowski. Um, this bill by Lindsey Graham and Bill Cassidy would totally gut Medicaid. It would get rid of all subsidies. It would totally gut and repeal Obamacare. There'd be nothing left. And all and one of the worst parts is that all the money the money that goes to states that have expanded Medicaid. And remember, Medicaid is the one health insurance plan that, or health care plan that most Americans belong to. Uh, it's the biggest of all, Medicaid, and helps people, of course, who can't afford to buy health insurance, vastly expanded under Obamacare uh, in those states that would do so. But the states, this what this bill would do is take the money away from the states who did expand Medicare, California. New York, Ohio, and other states, Democratic or Republican governors, those that expanded Medicare would lose all of that funding and that money would be distributed to the states that did not expand Medicaid. It is a total, total disaster. Uh, The Senate has until September 30 to pass this legislation. 
Otherwise, they would need 60 votes. So they've got this little window for reconciliation. Uh, they're planning on moving forward. And Mitch McConnell has said uh, once he can get to 50 votes, he'll bring it to the floor because even with 50 votes, Mike Pence could jump in, of course, and um, cast the deciding vote. Uh, Chuck Schumer yesterday saying, you thought the original Trump care plan was bad. This one, even worse. After a few weeks of lying dormant, Trump cares back, and it's meaner than ever. Meaner than ever, indeed, as I just pointed out. Uh, and as uh, Senator Schumer says, Medicaid especially feels the, the, will feel the blow. The new Trump care would plunge a dagger deep into the heart of Medicaid. Uh, so ads have already been started. Again, they're probably, out of 52 Republicans, they're probably 49 sure votes for it. Um, but uh, this one, one organization, Save Our Care, uh, has started running ads in key states um, to get the, the, at least three senators to vote against. Uh, here's the ad that started running yesterday up in Alaska. I'm voting for the people of Alaska. And that's just what Senator Murkowski did when she stood strong and voted against repealing health care, against slashing Medicaid, and against taking away care from people with pre-existing conditions like cancer. Now, partisan politicians are at it again. Yet another repeal bill, but with the same devastating impact on Alaska families. They're pressuring her to cave. Senator Murkowski, we're counting on you to stand strong and vote no on health care repeal. Seems hard to believe that Senator Murkowski would vote any other way than no, but she has not yet indicated for sure. But if she voted against the first one... She did. And she did. And this one is even worse... In, for all the reasons she voted against the first one, you got to believe. And by the way, she was welcomed as a hero when she got back to Alaska. There are big rallies at the airport when she arrived because, and she said, as she says in that quote there in the, in the ad, she was voting for the people of Alaska, not for her party, not for the president. And the people of Alaska would be devastated by that legislation, even more so by this one. Susan Collins voted no again. It's hard to believe that Susan Collins could vote for this bill, although she yet hasn't indicated how she will vote. But um, Maine, uh, it's reported this morning, Maine would lose $1 billion. Yeah, the full numbers are Alaska would lose $844 million, Maine, as you mentioned, $1 billion. And West Virginia, Shelley Moore Capito, the deciding vote there, $2 billion by 2027 if this bill passes. Right, in Medicaid funding. So uh, they're looking at no votes, hoping to get no votes from Lisa Murkowski, Susan Collins, and uh, Shelley Moore Capito. Rand Paul has already said he is a no vote. Confirmed, he says no vote. Um, so it may be tough to get to 50, but it's not certain. It's so damn close. It's really scary because this bill would pass through the House, no doubt about it, in a flash if they get it out of the Senate. Uh, the other vote, of course, is in question is that of John McCain. Very, very interesting because McCain, McCain of course, casts dramatically the, the uh, thumbs down, right, the big no vote that killed Mitch McConnell's 
first attempt a couple of months ago, embarrassing him, embarrassing the president, killed that first attempt to repeal Obamacare. After, well, they remember they'd lost the first one, then they came back with a substitute thing. McCain voted against that. Uh, but this time, McCain, again, hasn't indicated how he will vote. It's hard to believe, having voted against the first one, he would vote for an even worse piece of legislation. But there are two factors here. One is his buddy, his BFF, Lindsey Graham, is the co-author of this bill. You know, they travel all around the world together. You never see one without the other. Kind of hard to believe. They're like an old married couple that John McCain would vote against Lindsey Graham. He could. He's independent. But you know he's going to feel the need to help his buddy. That's one number one. Number two, the governor of Arizona, for whatever damn reason, I can't figure this out, who opposed the first bill, the governor of Arizona has come out for the Lindsey Graham and um, Bill Cassidy measure, which is going to put a little more pressure on John McCain, although I think that pressure is a lot less than the pressure to help his buddy Lindsey Graham. I mean, he doesn't really kind of give a damn about that governor, but... It, 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 it adds to the political pressure. Uh, I'm sure our it's, friend... It's tough. I'm sure our friend Ben Wickler at MoveOn.org would appreciate us announcing that uh, it's a great time to call your senator. Uh, absolutely. 202-224-3121. If you want to call your senators, 202-224-3121. Tell them to stop Trump care. In fact, Ben has organized an emergency stop Trump care again rally today at the U.S. Capitol, 1215 p.m., Follow him on Twitter at Ben Wickler for more information. He's been one of the leading uh, opponents of uh, this repeal and replace effort. Yeah, he had a huge crowd outside of the Senate the first time uh, the, for that last vote. Uh, I, I think that uh, the MoveOn.org and the other organizations that were all involved in that, Our Revolution Progressive Change Campaign Committee, uh, all deserve the credit for stopping the first repeal, and they're all out now to stop this repeal as well. By the way, just a little, because I call that number often, uh, just a little... Uh, Friendly advice when you call 202-224-3121. What you get, first of all, is a little prompt saying, um, give us your zip code or the name of your senator. Uh, Just push zero and go to the operator and then ask for whatever senator you want. You don't have to just call your senator. If you know your senator is a yes vote, you might want to call your, I mean, a no vote, a clear no vote. You might want to call your senator and say, Thank you for voting no. You're 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 a no vote on this legislation in terms of the Democrats or whatever or Republicans. But if you you can you can you can leave a message in any senator's office. This is going to this is going to be bad for my state. Please vote no against this repeal legislation. Two zero two 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 four three one two one. Don't forget. Go to far, the uh, get the operator. Go to any senator you want. As far as I know, these Democratic senators they talk to their colleagues about what they're hearing from their constituents yeah. as well on the yeah. other side of the aisle. So you know, keep, just keep calling no matter who your senator is. Right. Very very important. This is um, it is too damn close. We thought it was dead. I saw this morning that uh, someone told uh, was calling Bill Cassidy. Uh, the grave robber, yes, that this thing was dead and buried six feet under, but Bill Cassidy and Lindsey Graham dug it up again and have brought it back. Uh, I remember a friend of mine, when I first got involved in politics, used to say, when you're fighting for good causes, our victories are so temporary and our defeats are so final. Yeah, we thought we had won this one. I think we still will, but 
not unless we all really uh, now suddenly get back at it, redouble the efforts that we, whatever efforts we made the first time around to kill the repeal and stop this one in its tracks. Meanwhile, as we pointed out, Hurricane Maria, the latest to arrive on the scene, again, raising the question of the impact of climate change on uh, the world's uh, weather conditions. How real is it? Natasha Geeling, from, uh, who's climate reporter for Think Progress, uh, joins us for the next half hour to uh, talk about the reality of and the impact of climate change. We'll be right back. Oh, baby. Get social with Bill Press. Like us at Facebook.com slash Bill Press Show. This is the Bill Press Show. Live video, Bill's commentary, the best clips from the show, all in one place. YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show. All right, on a Tuesday, September 19, uh, The Bill Press Show, uh, rolling through the news of the day here with all of you. Thanks so much for joining us as we come to you live from Washington, D.C., and our studio on Capitol Hill, where we're brought to you today by the International, uh, the Laborers International Union of North America, Laborers International Union of North America, or LIUNA, uh, the good men and women of the Laborers Union. Um, building a better America. That's a website. Check it out at liunabuildsamerica.org under the leadership of President Terry O'Sullivan. Uh, yes, indeed. Even the Trump administration uh, had to uh, sit down for a while yesterday, members of, at the United Nations, and uh, discuss the issue of climate change. They may deny it, but it won't go away. Natasha Geiling is a climate reporter at Think Progress, joining us in studio this morning. Hi, Natasha. Nice to see you. Hi. Thanks for having me. So, first of all, um, Hurricane Maria, what's the latest? So, Hurricane Maria intensified yesterday from a Category 1 storm to a Category 5, so winds of upwards of 160 miles per hour, Um, and that's one of, not the fastest, but one of the <laughs> fastest periods of time for intensification that we've seen from a Category 1 to This is what, the five. third Category 5 that we've had this year? I don't remember if Harvey was 5 or was it? Or maybe I don't think Harvey ever reached 5. Hit, didn't reach five. Irma was definitely 5. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and Maria is now 5. And so we've seen a bunch of, Hurt. I mean, strong storms in quick succession in the Atlantic for sure. Right. Uh, and is Maria... From the trajectory, do we know that it could hit the mainland United States or Vera? We don't know yet if it's going to hit the mainland United (coughs) States. Last night it hit Dominica, um, and apparently all accounts there that it just devastation in its path, roofs, you know, ripped off of homes. Uh, And it looks like where it's headed next is Puerto Rico and the U.S. Virgin Islands. And that's a problem, you know, not just for the people there, but because that's a staging area for a lot of the aid that mm. is coming um, to the islands from Irma. And so there's some question about you know how that will continue if the storm continues to be as strong as it is and hits, hits those places. Now, I know that the uh, administrator of the EPA says that uh, I'm being insensitive to ask this question, uh, to even suggest that climate change may be somewhat involved. But what can we say? It, 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 can we blame 
uh, Irma, Harvey, Irma, and Maria and Jose on climate change? So it's always difficult to say, you know, climate change caused XYZ storm. Um, But a lot of people and a lot of climate scientists would say that that's not even the right question to ask. The question is, did it make it worse or did it make it more dangerous? And I think that we can say pretty certainly that warm ocean temperatures and warm atmosphere does a couple of things. It helps storms um, feeds into the wind speed. So it helps storms intensify more quickly like we're seeing. It allows the atmosphere to hold more moisture. So you see the kind of extreme precipitation events that we saw with Harvey where you have two feet of rain falling over a you know matter of a couple days. Um, and it certainly contributes to sea level rise. And when you have higher sea level, you have worse storm surges. So when the storm hits and it pushes mm-hmm. the water in mm-hmm. inland, mm-hmm. those, you know, we're seeing storm surges of upwards of six feet in some places. And that's just really difficult for coastal communities to deal with unless they've put in place some kind of barrier or seawall. And even then, you know, you can't prevent against. So uh, I I guess it's safe to say, certainly there have always been hurricanes, right? I mean, I grew up (laughs) on the East Coast in Delaware. I mean, hurricane season, you know, we're used to them. Uh, We lost our house to the, to a beach house, Mm -hmm. uh, to the ocean hurricane. Um, So I've been through them, but the fact that hurricanes today are occurring more frequently and more intensely and bigger and worse storms back to back to back, certainly you can attribute to climate change being a major factor. Definitely. You can definitely say that climate change is making these storms much more dangerous than they would have been otherwise due to the extreme rainfall, the storm surge, um, the wind speeds. Okay. So what was um, Gary Cohn, the president's chief, uh, uh, he's the Economic, economic, economic yeah, head advisor? of the Economic yeah, Council, senior. right? Uh, meeting with uh, representatives of other nations at the United Nations yesterday to talk about climate change. I mean, the Trump administration is officially climate change denier. Yeah. So there was a little bit of will they, won't they over the weekend. There was some news in the Wall Street Journal that the European Union's climate minister said that he had heard potentially the administration might want to re-enter the Paris Agreement if they could renegotiate terms or, or some such. And the White House came out pretty firmly and said, no, our position hasn't changed. We are withdrawing, you know, until such a time as the agreement is more favorable to the United States. Yeah, I mean, for, like Rex Tillerson yeah. you know, said Sunday, you know, no, we're out, but we'd get back in if we can negotiate a better deal for the United States. So, I mean... Yeah. So are we in or out of Paris? It seems that we're out. Um, for all intents and purposes, we are out in terms of our international <laughs> standing and negotiations. And and what Gary Cohn said yesterday was, you know, we are out. Um, and more than the rhetoric of the agreement, I think the behavior of the administration is really what shows that we are out. That they have um, worked. Are working and are going to repeal and potentially replace the clean power plan that that Trump is basically using executive action to undo any um, Obama era climate policy that he possibly can that Obama did through executive action that they that the EPA you know the cuts the budget cuts that we're seeing to the EPA various climate agencies um, so I think even more than the the rhetoric of are we in or are we out? It's the behavior of the administration shows that even if they were to nominally re-enter in some way, or if Trump decided ultimately to not withdraw, because withdrawal won't happen until uh, November fourth, twenty twenty, the mechanism 
is put in place so that you know there's a delay from when you want to withdraw to when you do withdraw. Um, I think that that would matter little compared to what we've seen them do policy-wise. Yeah, and, and let me just be sure I understand. So first of all, the date you gave, November 4, 2020, reflects the fact that according to the rules of Paris, when you withdraw, mm-hmm. as Trump did, mm-hmm. it takes three years mm-hmm. before that kicks in, mm-hmm. and then it takes like a year to do the paperwork, yeah. right? Yeah. So that gets us to November 4, 2020. Yeah. So technically, we could get through the entire first term of Donald Trump and still be in Paris. Technically. Technically, Technically, right. yeah. But what you're saying, as I hear you, is in the meantime, while technically we're still in Paris, the Trump administration would be doing and is doing everything it can to reverse course on any progress that Barack Obama had made toward climate change, correct? Yeah, yeah, that's right. And the and thing- principally, this one big regulation was in construction of new coal-fired power plants or regulations on the emissions from existing coal-fired power plants. Exactly. So the thing about Paris is that it, and this is something that the administration um, either seems to not understand or is willfully ignorant of, but it is based off of independent contributions by each country. And so each country came to the table and said, this is what we're going to do to reduce emissions. And basically here is how we have chosen to do it for ourselves. And the big mechanism that the Obama administration had chosen to use was the Clean Power Plan, which was going to regulate greenhouse gas emissions from power plants, which are you know, the most or some of the most polluting when it comes to carbon, um, mm-hmm. right? You know, producers in the country. So with so this meeting yesterday, I mean, nothing happened, I guess. Yeah, yeah. it seems like it, it was a lot of um, verve, basically, to end up where we were at the beginning of the week um, or end of last week, I guess, to say that you know, as it stands, the administration is still planning on withdrawing under the formal mechanism, which would have us leaving on November 4th, 2020. I've read that some scientists believe it's too late, anyhow. Yeah. That we passed the point of no return. Yeah. There there is some, I mean, there is debate in the climate community about have we reached a tipping point where, based on various feedback mechanisms, so things that release carbon and then it kind of in and of themselves keep releasing carbon, so... Uh, the thawing of permafrost, for example, the kind of right. permanently thawed or frozen soil up in the Arctic, if that releases methane, and then that methane in turn con- contributes to warming that releases then even more methane from the permafrost, is that kind of a trigger um, that we might have gone over? A new study actually yesterday came out um, as might have a little more time than we had thought and that our carbon budget, so the amount of carbon that we're allowed to put kind of into the atmosphere before we reach a certain amount of warming has actually been underestimated and that we have a little bit of more leeway before we get to 1.5 Celsius, which is the aspirational goal of the Paris Agreement. Um, but it's, you know, I think it's really hard to, to say what those tripwires are and exactly when they're going to be but the, um, the glaciers are not coming back. No, there. I mean, there are some things we <laughs> we are definitely living in a changed climate, and and there are things that will we will continue to see. You know, wildfires I think are just going to continue to be getting worse. The kind of storms that we're seeing, 
those are things. And the thing about carbon is that it it exists in the atmosphere for you know half a century, and so kind of we've kind of started on this pipeline um, and sort of even if today we stopped, you know, and said we're not going right, to burn fossil right. fuels anymore, there would still be a certain amount of warming baked in that we would see the continued consequences. All right. Now, we talk so much about the hurricanes, but you mentioned something I wanted to ask you about. Uh, is there any connection between climate change and uh, the opposite that we've seen uh, on the West Coast, right? First of all, um, the heat wave. I mean, so we live in the San Francisco, when I'm not in Washington, the San Francisco Bay Area. Uh, it was 104 degrees on the west coast of Marin County. Mm-hmm. It was 104 degrees. I talked to a friend last night who was at a, a ball game in San Francisco, a Giants game in San Francisco. It was 104 degrees in the stadium. Mm-hmm. I mean, San Francisco's never seen temperatures like that. What's going on? Yeah, so extreme heat is one of the characteristic um, <laughs> attributes of climate change, and it's something that we are seeing more. I mean, the hottest years on record, many of them, the majority of them, have come in the last um, 15 to 17 years, this century, since 2000. Um, and it's pretty clear that when global temperature increases, you'll start to see sort of the the curve of heat distribution kind of shift. And so what was once extreme, you know, 104 in San Francisco, 90 degree days in Seattle are going to be more and more common. And um, with that, uh, right, uh, come the wildfires mm-hmm. on the West. I mean, again, I was re- recently on the on the West Coast up in up in Oregon. You couldn't breathe because of the smoke from the forest fires. Yeah. Um, and th- there's just been even more since we came we came back. Um, again, climate change related? Absolutely. So I was actually in Oregon, too, um, and Washington for the last two weeks, and it was amazing to see the smoke and the haze. It was really, the air quality was just insane because of all these fires that are burning. And even if the fires aren't started you know, in a natural way, most fires are started by human ignition, kind of human. Like the one in the Columbia. Uh, yeah, the, the Eagle the, Creek fire that was started Columbia by. Columbia Gorge, yeah, it was started by kid some kids with, with fireworks. Fire, fireworks, yeah. Um, but that fire spread, I think it was 13 miles in 18 hours, and that was due to high wind, which is, you know, not necessarily climate related, but dry conditions, low humidity, and high temperature, and all of those, you know, drought is climate-related, high-temperature, climate-related, low humidity that goes along with the high temperature. Um, And so what we're seeing is fires that start and then burn bigger or longer because the climate conditions kind of foster sort of a longer, more dangerous fire season. Right. So you have written about um, one one possible um, area where there could be some continued progress and that is where the federal government is is either not doing anything or going backwards. Cities and states stepping up to the plate, particularly Governor Jerry Brown, whom I used to work for, uh, has become kind of the king of climate change. He was in New York yesterday at his own, at his own meeting on climate change, um, and uh, talk called the uh, uh, the people around Donald Trump cave dwellers. Right, and said. Yeah. You know, look it up. Troglodytes or Trumpites. It's basically the same thing. He's not wrong. 
No, he's not wrong. He's absolutely right on. They are. What does he say? He lives a. Uh, that this is a great, great quote exactly. They're both kind of, kind of very similar. You should check out the derivation of Trumpite and troglodyte because they both refer to people who dwell in deep, dark caves. Uh, but, Jer- Jerry's quite the wordsmith, huh, Bill? Uh, uh, yes, he is. I can tell you uh, from my own experience, but. But he is a leader on climate change in California saying, no, we're not going backwards. We're going to continue to move forward. You know, some other states have as well. Mm-hmm. Um, what can they do? So there, there is some stuff that they can do. And people are always like, oh, if the federal government, you know, without this kind of overarching plan, climate change is such a big issue. What can be done? Uh, but there's actually a lot that can be done at the local level. Cities, for instance, have a lot of control over building codes and building efficiency. And mm-hmm. buildings are some of the largest producers of carbon dioxide um, in an urban area. And so if a city like New York came out with a mandate last week that's basically going to force buildings to update uh, to be more in line with modern codes, they're going to have to replace windows or boilers. They're going to have to come up with a plan for fossil fuel use by 2030, kind of limits on their own use. And um, if they don't, they're going to be fined think it's a million or two million dollars a year for every year that they're not in compliance so that's one way um, that cities can can help you know choosing to deploy electric vehicles for their municipal fleets can also help Um, and then at the state level you see places like California which recently extended its cap-and-trade market so that's where people or businesses that that create carbon emissions have to buy credits past a certain limit that's set and that limit mm-hmm. gets lower and lower mm-hmm. every year so that they can kind and of California has the has the, the toughest toughest uh, air quality standards for for new cars yeah they do and that has actually been kind of a, a huge impetus for other states than adopting similar um, and for standards. all the manufacturers yeah because California is a big market that's right? the thing I mean states like California have economies that rival some small countries you know and so when they adopt standards and and manufacturers and businesses want to enter into a market in California you know they're going by kind of California standards not necessarily the larger maybe more lax standards of a of a Trump federal mm-hmm. government and so um, you know there's a lot that cities and states can do to kind of push progress forward. There's some talk about California, Oregon, and Washington joining in sort of a um, carbon market themselves, sort of a a Reggie equivalent, which are the nine northeastern states that have a carbon um, market within themselves. And, you know, so there's... There is stuff that states can do. The The drawback to that is that it's it's much more patchwork without a federal government. Sure. So we talked about the Clean Power Plan. That would have kind of set a federal standard right. that allowed states to do what they wanted. This is now 50 you know, different plans. So maybe the combination of cities and states can at least um, mean the what Donald Trump is trying to do. It won't be as bad, exactly. right, if we can get and kind of get us through – uh, until uh, 2020. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and and, uh, and 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 kind of you know, hold things off yeah. just for a little bit. Um, certainly, uh, Jerry is uh, is he is leaving New York and going up to Ontario and Quebec as all part of this uh, this mission. He was in Russia last week, so. Um, uh, yeah. he, he he's emerged. I think as a new leader on he, uh, on climate change. He definitely yeah. has. Yeah. 
It's great to see you. Thanks yeah. so much for coming in, Thanks Natasha. So much for right. Me. Thanks for all the good work you're doing over Absolutely. at Think Progress. And uh, we always tell you thinkprogress.org. That's why we have so many friends in from Think Progress because they do such a great job reporting there. So um, we thank you very much. Uh, keep up the good fight and don't listen to Donald Trump <laughs> or Gary Cohn. I try not to. Uh, no, <laughs> indeed. Yes, indeed. Uh, one other thing I wanted to uh, talk to you about, which you didn't have a chance to get to in our first half hour. Um, you know, let me let me just say right now, okay, I know that a lot of people are jumping on board the Sean Spicer Rehabilitation Tour. Count me out. You know what I'm talking about. Yeah, there are the Emmys, Sunday night. The big joke is Sean Spicer. Uh, Stephen, Stephen Colbert says, well, nobody will really know how big, how many people are watching the Emmys tonight. Does anybody have any idea of the size of the crowd? What about you, Sean? And here he comes pushing uh, the podium, the Saturday Night Live podium, the Melissa McCarthy podium, Sean Spicer. This will be the largest audience to witness an Emmys, period, both in person and around the world. Uh, yes, and the crowd there at the Emmys in Hollywood, uh, loved it for whatever reason. Uh, certainly, Sean Spicer, of course, he's reflecting his very, very first appearance as press secretary for President Donald Trump the day uh, after the inauguration in the White House briefing room. This was the largest audience to ever witness an inauguration, period, both in person and around the globe. Ha, ha, ha. So now, well, he's up for he's up for Jimmy Kimmel. He's now in the uh, out there at the at the star of the Emmys, and after um, his appearance Sunday night, uh, Sean Spicer told the New York Times they asked him, "So, do you regret having made that statement about the inaugural crowd the day after the inauguration?" And Sean Spicer says, "Of course, I regret it. I'm sorry I did it." Yeah. So now. We're supposed to feel sorry for Sean Spicer and forgive Sean Spicer, to which I say, forget about it. No freaking way. I do not accept Sean Spicer's apology. I don't accept him as some kind of a hero. Let's face it. Look, he, I mean, so he wants to make a joke about it now, right? We're all supposed to admire him now. No way. Let's go back to the, the inauguration. Sean Spicer, he's the press secretary of the United States. It's his first appearance. He clearly was told to go out there and tell a lie. He knew what he was saying was a lie. He did it anyway. This was his time. Now, I know it's his first day. It's his first official act on the part of this president. But when the first thing that the president tells you to do is to go out there and lie to the American people and lie to the world and tell such a lie that is manifestly not true, how can you do that? How can you have any self-respect, right? Let alone any respect for the truth or any respect for your job and go out there and tell that lie. And then what did Sean Spicer do? And remember, I go to the briefings. I was there day after day when Sean Spicer just came out. And again, knowingly, deliberately, willingly told lie after lie after lie for Donald Trump. 
And now he wants us all to think, oh, he's such a nice guy. You know, you know. Here's the thing. B.S. So, you know, friends of Sean Spicer because he has a lot of friends in this town. He He's does. been here for a while. We'll say, oh, he was just doing a job. He was no. just doing his job. You no. know, serving the American no. public. You know no. what? He did a disservice to this country, specifically because he trashed journalists and he trashed their industry. And basically made all these people who follow Trump blindly believe that the media isn't real and that they push fake news. When yeah, they are the right. ones that are actually presenting the facts I'm and not say, him. No, he's accusing the media of not telling the truth when he's a guy who's up there and hasn't didn't tell the truth the whole time he was press secretary, right? So I know there's this whole rehabilitation tour for Sean Spicer again. No, count me Don't buy out. it. Don't, don't buy it. Don't buy into it. And I say shame on Hollywood for trying to make him a, you know, a new celebrity and the new Wonder Boy and the new favorite toy uh, of the media. Uh-uh, uh-uh, no way, no way. He knew what he was doing, uh, and he, disgra- he brought disgrace to the job of press secretary, and may he live ever in disgrace. When we come back, Alex Seitzwald joins us from NBC News. Now, there's a man who doesn't preach fake media. He this tells us the truth. This is the Bill Press Show. Hey, everybody, this is Bill Press. Thanks for listening to the Bill Press and Friends podcast. And now, do yourself a favor. If you haven't already done so, subscribe to the show on iTunes. Here's what you do. Just search for the Bill Press Show. Then you can take us with you and listen in anywhere you go. And you'll get new shows from us as soon as they're posted. And one more thing. If you really enjoy Bill Press and Friends, please help us grow by telling a friend, writing a review, and giving us a rating on iTunes. It's so great to have you on board. Many thanks. Giving you everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show. Live at YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show. You thought it was dead? Uh-uh. It's back. The effort to repeal Obamacare. Yep, it is back. And it is frighteningly close to getting through the United States Senate. 49 votes, maybe. Will they get that 50th vote? Not if we all do our job and raise holy hell. Hello, everybody. Welcome. Uh, it is Tuesday, September 19. This is <coughs> my preference. Running out of breath here. This is the Bill Press Show. We're coming to you live from Washington, D.C., our nation's capital, with all the news of the day. And there's lots to talk about with Donald Trump uh, showing up at the United Nations for the first time and getting ready for his first speech to the General Assembly today. Uh, How could we get through all the news of the day without the help of a good friend? Uh, We couldn't. That's why we brought in Alex Seitzwald from NBC News. Here is a friend of Bill for the entire hour. Hello, Alex. Hey, Bill. Very good to be here. All right. What about it? I mean, Donald Trump, uh, it's going to be interesting today. This is a guy who has pulled out of the Paris Accord, called for a Muslim ban, right? Um, Insulted North Korea, insulted South Korea, insulted the Brits, and he's going to stand up in front of them today. Yeah, not the greatest uh, team player on the world stage. And he's finally going to get to meet those tiles. Uh, you know, there's a Donald Trump tweet for everything, and he has lamented the tiles at the United Nations General Assembly and said if he were president, he would fix the tiles that stand behind <laughs> the world leaders. So we'll see if maybe he pulls out a, a chisel and starts working on them in the middle of his He'll speech. replace them with gold. Yeah, exactly. More, more gold. Uh, uh, that's what he needs. Like yeah. 
The Trump Tower across the street. Exactly. I, I, I mean, we could play bingo, you know, on what he's going to do. Will he make a reference to the opportunity he saw when he built that Trump Tower, brag about it in front of the well, internal assembly? I'd say there's like a 40% chance. He did it yesterday. Right, and yeah. And he could very well do it today and say, by the way, if you need a place to stay, we got a place right across <laughs> the street here. We could take care of you. Yeah, indeed. Oh, so much to get into with Alex. And don't forget, always look forward to hearing from you, your comments on the news of the day at BP Show. We'll dive right in, but first... This is the, the Full Court Press. Just a couple of other stories for you on this Tuesday morning. We begin more bad news in the Equifax hack. Oh, God. According to Bloomberg, the consumer credit reporting company actually learned about the breach back in March, five months before it was publicly disclosed. Of course, just, uh, just very recently here, the company released a statement saying that this March breach was not related to the hack that exposed the personal info data of 143 million U.S. consumers. Either way you look at it, this means that there were two major hacks suffered by Equifax over the course of just a few months. What did they know and when did they know it? Do we know this? who did this? We don't know too many details about this, this new North March Koreans hack. or the Chinese or the Russians or... Maybe they all just got together and had a party. Yeah. Yeah. Could be. Merriam-Webster announcing yesterday that they've added 250 new terms to its dictionary. Among them, froyo, pregame, and sriracha. They've also added the term alt-right, which they define as, quote, a right-wing primarily online political movement or grouping based in the U.S. (laughs) whose members reject mainstream conservative politics and espouse extremist beliefs and policies typically centers on ideas of white nationalism. Yeah, but there's some very fine people among that group. Could be, very much, yeah, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I do th- I do want to add, they also added dog whistle, which is uh, a, a term occasionally used uh, when it comes to Donald Trump uh, and uh, the, uh, well, dog whistling that he employs uh, both in his campaign and now as president. Was Antifa there? Antifa, I do not believe, has made the dictionary as of yet. Hey, so, you know, of course, we talked about Sean Spicer last hour and bragging uh, on stage uh, at the Emmys about how this will be the largest audience ever for the Emmys. The numbers are out. It is perhaps the lowest audience ever (laughs) for the Emmys. Really? Whoa. Uh, It was just last year that it was 11.3 million watching the Emmys. Just a slight rise this year at 11.4 million Americans watching the Emmys. So Sean Spicer, just more fake news. Got it wrong again. Even outside of the White House. (laughs) On your radio, on TV. And online, this is The Bill Press Show. What do you say, friends and neighbors? It's great to see you. It is The Bill Press Show here on a Tuesday, September 19. Thanks so much for joining us. Coming to you live from Washington, D.C., where suddenly repeal of Obamacare, we thought it was dead two months ago. No, it is back with full force and uh, a bill introduced by Lindsey Graham and Bill Cassidy uh, from Bill Cassidy, Louisiana. Lindsey Graham, of course, from South Carolina. Uh, And according to counters and bean counters in the United States Senate, it could have as many as 49 votes. Uh, Mitch McConnell says if he gets one more vote, 50, it'll go right to the floor. Uh, And according to... Hello? It'll go right to the floor for a vote. 
uh, and um, that could mean real trouble because all of those who've looked at this bill say it is even worse than the first effort at repeal. We got our eye on that and all the rest of the news of the day, uh, and joined by a, here's a friend of Bill for the hour, Alex Seitzwald, political reporter for NBC News, our good friend. Good to see you again, Alex. Hey, Bill. Very good to be back. So, uh, Donald Trump taking the New York. T- what do you think we can expect from this speech today? I mean, he was rather muted yesterday. You know, he had some critical comments about the UN. It's never achieved its potential. The bureaucracy is uh, too big, right? We're going to make it great. Not great again because it's never been great. Right. We're going to make it great. For the first time. For the first time. By, by gold plating everything. Um, He tends to be good in these settings. You know, he's done two big foreign policy speeches (laughs) as president, one in Riyadh and one in uh, Warsaw uh, over the summer. And, you know, these are the kinds of speeches that people who have a lot more experience than he does spend months working on polishing and he reads them off a teleprompter. Yeah. And everyone applauds and then the pundits say, wow, he really looked presidential. And then he goes out and tweets some more crazy stuff. Right. So I would expect that that he'll have uh, one of those rare moments of uh, uh, what we think of as presidential shining through. Today, he'll try to reconcile his, you know, America first agenda with a kind of America as a leader uh, and say those those two things are, are not a, different. As a partner for everybody there, sort of. Yeah. Right. And and one thing he has been very big on, which the secretary general has agreed with him on, is reforming the U.N. as a bureaucracy. So I guess he'll he'll address uh, some of that. Two, you know, I, I think in general, these kinds of speeches uh, rarely are major policymaking spaces or uh, really change a lot of things. It's more a, a kind of a, a to broadcast your values, your principles. And uh, a lot of skeptical leaders in the audience today, that's for sure. So he talked uh, yesterday about um, uh, this bureaucracy and uh, uh, the fact that uh, we need to do a little streamlining, which, as you said, even the secretary general has has as uh, he's that's one of his goals. Yeah. I mean, the, the, I'm just let's uh, hear Donald Trump if we yeah, we must ensure that no one and no member state shoulders a disproportionate share of the burden, and that's militarily or financially. That's another thing that he is sort of like he said about NATO, right? We want to be sure we spread the burden, right? And uh, and he did talk about the bureaucracy, too. Um, but so, um, you know, maybe not the best way to start his time there, <laughs> a little, little critical. Yeah, I mean, the, uh, to be fair, the, the UN is a notoriously decrepit bureaucracy. Yeah. I mean, you take a national bureaucracy and then you multiply it times 200 countries and everybody's competing for it. But the, the kind of notion that we're getting screwed by supporting the UN, I mean, it's like a, you know, a fraction of a fraction of a percent of the US budget. And the US really was instrumental in creating the UN. There's a reason it's in New York, because we always believed that having this in our backyard and playing a major role would actually be good for America as the most powerful country in the world. You can shape the kind of uh, international way that everything works. He seems to reject that, and that's a bigger uh, problem. The question is whether he'll actually follow through on, you know, doing anything to neuter the the UN any more than it already is. Well, back to his speech. I mean, uh, I agree with you, and I've talked to a couple of people about it who've said, yes, it's going to be a scripted speech. He'll read it from the teleprompter uh, and refrain from his ad libs, one would hope at any rate. And yet, 
everybody there knows this is a man who pulled out of the climate climate uh, Paris accord, Accords, which almost every other nation sitting in front of him has signed on to. Right. This At the man, urging of the U.S. <laughs> At the urging of the United States, right. Yeah. Uh, this is a man who has said, we want to ban all Muslims from coming into this country, right? This is a man who- a lot who, of Muslims sitting in front of him. Exactly, yeah. right? Uh, as a man who has said that, um, well, he's had critical things to say about the Brits, um, the, particularly this latest terrorist incident in London. You know, Scotland Yard had this guy in his, their sights and let him go. Uh, he's been critical of them before, uh, critical of even South Korea, accusing them of appeasement. So he hasn't made a lot of friends in that crowd. I mean, so uh, there's going to be a lot of skepticism, I guess, in that assembly. It, it is already. Hard, it is hard to imagine if you if you just picture him up at the front of that big room there, and you know we've all seen it on TV, looking yeah. out as he scans the audience. Who is he going to be making eye contact with? As you know, yeah. kind of right. a, a reassurance. I get the Saudis, maybe. <laughs> I mean, like it, literally, it's hard to it's hard to even think of. He most of the Europeans have been uh, pretty alienated. The uh, you know certainly. <laughs> any Muslim countries aside from the couple that he's bent over backwards to. Uh, show favoritism to, but uh, I do think there is always this desire, this optimism from policymakers, from world leaders, from people in the press, even that he'll maybe this time will be the time that he turns things around and he starts, you know, acting up. And 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 so people are always going to be looking for that glimmer of hope. They want to believe that he is changing and being more presidential. And so when he shows those kinds of moments, I think people can sometimes let their imaginations take them that way. Yeah. All right. I don't know what time that speech is today, but it'll be, uh, it'll be interesting interesting to watch. Uh, here on the home front, um, you may have heard me a little rant there at the end of the last hour. So what are we supposed to think about Sean Spicer? I mean, the a lot of people go, oh, you know, he's really a good guy and, you know, he's now he says he's the latest is he told the New York Times he's sorry he said what he said about the size of the inaugural crowd and so we just forgive and forget and move on there's a long history here that we can compare him to of aides to former politicians presidents disgraced ones re-entering public life in various ways and the always the kind of agreement has been you have to repent in some way before you're allowed back into good society or you have to break with that. You know, George Stephanopoulos, before he, uh, from being Bill Clinton's press secretary before he got into media, he wrote that tell-all book, which pissed off a lot of people and his former colleagues in the White House. Halderman and all the, Ray, the Nixon guys, they never really made it back in because they never apologized for anything. Roger Stone is still a dead-ender to this day. He's got Richard Nixon tattooed on his back, yeah, and he's right. not allowed in, in fine society. So this is different. Uh, to let Sean Spicer just kind of, you know, waltz in, he yes, after his Emmy appearance, he apologized. But like a week before that, he was on the Colbert Show and he totally dodged on on whether he was wrong to say the inauguration crowds were the biggest ever. He has shown you know zero remorse, zero reflection. Uh, you, you kind of think of it like you're granting parole to someone, and you know do do they understand what, why what they did was wrong? And I, I haven't seen anything like that from but, him. But you know, I saw him, I wasn't there that day, but I saw him afterward many, many times at the White House in the White House briefing room. And you know, every day was just this cascade of lies, right? Knowingly, deliberately, willingly lying to us and to the American people. The and, tweet speaks for itself, uh, I'm moving on. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, and, and, and so the, the and, and, and also, you know, we've seen this 
this position of press secretary, all right, so the job of the press secretary is not to tell the media everything they want. Of course, right? of course. Right. But it's also not to lie, right? And so there's a fine way, like with Robert, I think Mike McCurry is the best that I've seen. Yeah. But all of them, they've had a way is is of telling as much as they can or as much as they're willing to tell, right? Uh, and twisting it maybe or spinning it or something so it sounds maybe better than it is. And that's why we push and we prod and try to get the tr- to the truth. But to, uh, there's a difference between that and outright lying, right. right? which is what Sean Spice would do. I mean, Robert Gibbs, Sh- Josh Ernest, they were very, very good, right, at, at evading. Evading. Yeah. They would tell you as much as the White House wanted you to know, but otherwise they could evade it without getting to the point, crossing that line. With Sean Spicer and with Sarah Sanders, there ain't no line. Yeah, and it's a, it, may, it sounds like a distinction without difference, but it is a really critical distinction. And I think that's – I think a lot of the Trump – uh, phenomenon was about playing on the cynicism that Americans have with politics, and they just assume that the press secretary just lies through their teeth from the podium because, yeah, they are they're always evasive and obfuscate. But but it's different, and it, it's it's hard to communicate that. But there is a there is a real meaningful substantive difference from what Sean Spicer did to what you know previous uh, press secretaries have done, and uh, it. it Yes, the job of the press secretary is to communicate the message from the president. No, the job of the press secretary is not to do whatever the president tells you. And then, especially to later, he is now asking for sympathy because he was a public servant. He talks about himself as if, you know, I was was just serving my country. Well, were you serving the president or were you serving the country? Because if you were serving the country, then you can't just lie when the president tells you to lie. Bingo. President. Yeah. Fine. Absolutely. No, I mean, well, well said. I mean, I, I keep thinking myself in that position. If I, uh, not that I would even be considered, but if I were, I mean, I've worked for um, a governor, Jerry Brown. I've worked for a state senator, Peter Bear, and and, and um, both of whom I admire greatly, uh, and did at the time. But if one of them had told me, no, you go out there and say this, and I know it's not true, I could not do it. Yeah, I would not do it. Yeah. I would hope I would not do it, but I, I don't. Every, do, you, do you remember this one? You know, you had a, you know, someone as despicable as Hitler who didn't even sink to the, to the, to using chemical weapons. Right. And you, and you would hope that the, the role of the press secretary would be to advise the president, you, not only will I not lie, but you don't want me to lie because if I do, then you will lose all credibility with this mm-hmm. very important constituency, which is the media, you know, don't pick a fight with people who buy ink by the barrel, as they say. Uh, and and you would hope the the president or the or the governor or whoever they were working for it would say that's a good point. You know, you're you're right. You would hope that they would be open to that kind of criticism. And we just Trump is right. is not. He's a he's a he runs his staff like a fiefdom. So the attitude seems to be, oh, you know, well, again, Sean Spice is a nice guy, and 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 yeah, he lied, but you know, this is like sort of like this is the Trump administration, so we have to accept like a different standard. Uh, I'm reminded of just uh, two days ago where Donald Trump retweeted this meme of his hitting a golf ball, right, and then knocking Hillary Hillary Clinton in the back and knocking her over as she's climbing onto her plane, which if anybody else did that, there'd be cries of, you know, disgust and disgrace and and demands for an apology. And with Donald Trump, it says everybody says, oh, well, that's Donald Trump, right? Yeah. I think I think that's what is a double. Sta- I mean, at least a double standard. Yeah. Absolutely, he he is 
taken the worst views that Americans have of how politics works, used that as the starting point, and then pushed the boundaries from there. Instead of the way every other politician has operated is they hold themselves, or at least they pretend to hold themselves, to a standard that doesn't really exist, but it's a standard that we aspire to be. So they try to act as you would want politicians to act in the abstract. Trump starts with reality and then goes you know, way beyond that. But, I mean, we have lowered our own standards to accept that, right? I mean, Absolutely. this is a guy who said about women, you know, you can grab, if you're famous enough, you can grab them by their you-know-what, right? And now he puts out, uh, like, this meme, and we just sort of accept it. Oh, well, it's Donald Trump. It's acceptable because it's Donald No, it's not. Yeah, right. I mean, I do think, you know, picking your battles, sure, and um, and picking what to, to pay attention to. Like, I, I think that, that particular meme was a... a I think he knew what he was doing there, and he knew that people would pay attention to that and not, you know, mm-hmm. other stuff. But that doesn't make it normal, and that doesn't make it acceptable in any other uh, situation. So you and I have covered a lot of ground with um, um, Bernie Sanders, uh, and you were in the, our living room for a little meeting with a Washington journalist uh, early in Bernie's uh, uh, campaign. Yeah, long, uh, long before we had any idea how how big it would go. Right. Um, is is Bernie Sanders today the leader of the Democratic Party? I I don't know that there is a leader of the Democratic Party, but or the, sorry, I don't know if there's the leader of the Democratic Party, but he's certainly a leader of the Democratic Party. Uh, I but, mean, but he's not a Democrat. Okay, I find this whole <laughs> debate kind of academic. I mean, there are some people who care very much whether he is a Democrat or not. I don't think his supporters care. I don't think. Uh, Kamala Harris and Kirsten Gillibrand and Cory Booker and Elizabeth Warren, who all stood up next to him last week and endorsed his Medicare for All bill. They might care, but they don't care enough to not back on to this very big bill. Uh, He's a guy who so much of his strength comes from his independence and from being seen as somebody who will do what is right regardless of what the corrupt powers that be want him to do. And not being a Democrat signals that it, it's a it's a way of showing his base that he is an independent. By pushing single payer, um, is he pushing the Democratic Party too far to the left? Too far? I don't know. Um, I, I my gut right now is no. I, I think um, the party needs big ideas, and uh, you know he's not pushing John Tester and Claire McCaskill and people who are up for re-election in tough uh, red states. To, to back single payer, he's pushing Elizabeth Warren and Kirsten Gillibrand, who are running for president, and well, might be running for president mm-hmm. in twenty twenty, to back single payer. Uh, there could be collateral damage to them in, in twenty eighteen. That's a risk there, you know, that they, that he's taking. But uh, I, he is filling a void that it, clearly there's an appetite to be filled. I mean, you don't. Cory Booker is not a Bernie Sanders guy. Cory Booker was a very hardcore Hillary Clinton guy. The fact that he's jumping onto this. Somebody is stepping up and taking leadership. It happens to be Bernie Sanders, and they're they're following. Right, um, and and you know I I think that people, pardon me, people see that the goal of single payer, which I'm totally on board, is an aspirational goal. Yeah, right. Uh, it's certainly if we get there, and when we get there, it's going to take a long time to get there, and there will probably be some steps in between. Right. Uh, and that, that's a key. I, I think th- there was a lot of criticism from the left, uh, including uh, when they rolled out the single payer bill about the policy that it's too, it's too expensive. It won't work. Americans will never go for it. I 
by all of that. I think that's that that is all you know largely true. There are enormous policy consequences, and I think it would be it's hard to imagine a Congress that looks anything like our current Congress, even in Democratic hands, passing mm-hmm. it. But that's not the way to think about this. The way to think about this is not a policy exercise, but as a political exercise. Think of it as like a brand that you know you're you're signaling that you want every American to have health care. Here's the way we want to do it. We'll figure out the details later. But uh, it's like the you know the the Mario Cuomo thing: campaign in single payer, and maybe you govern in public option <laughs> or something. Right. But it's a it's aspirational, exactly. How, how do you get the gospel of single payer to reach a Trump voter in Middle America? You know, the, it it might be less hard than it seems, uh, depending on which Trump voter you're talking about. But sure, Trump on the campaign trail talked a lot about expanding. Trump, Trump himself at one time was for single payer. I mean, yeah, if you, if you talk about being fair, right, and helping the working class and the middle and middle class, and making sure that every single American has it's not just the elites. Every single, I mean, that's Trump talk, right? Yeah, right. You're in, and uh, you know, there's a there's there's definitely a populist element to this, uh, and, and there's a reason that Trump talks a lot about expanding health benefits. What happens when you get, you know, a uh, hundred million dollars in negative ads, and every Republican talking about how it's a government takeover of healthcare, how your taxes are going to go up, how you're going to be ripped off your <laughs> health insurance provided by your employer? That totally changes everything. And the polls show people are very susceptible to that kind of uh, messaging. So I don't know once we get there. But uh, in theory, it's it's at least possible. Um, now, you told me before we uh, came live on air that you have uh, um, actually acquired a copy and read uh, Hillary Clinton's book, What Happened. She um, was with the great Terry Gross yesterday on NPR, um, Fresh Air. Uh, and... Um, Terry pushed her on whether or not Donald Trump is the uh, legitimate president of the United States, and would it ever be? Uh, would she be open to revisiting that question? Uh, here's that little exchange. Would you completely rule out questioning the legitimacy of this election if, if we learn that the Russian interference in the election is even deeper? than we know now. No, I would not. I I would say... You're not going to rule it out. No, I wouldn't rule it out. Really? Uh, Pretty big. Uh, Well, two things. I mean, one... Kind of late to be saying that. Yeah, right. Exactly. That's why it's. That's why it's October. That's actually why it strikes me as big. Is almost a year later. Is that she? She had. She went through all the steps, despite her clear misgivings, which she lays out in over 469 pages in these books about the the process of the election, Comey, the Russians, everything that interfered. She followed all the steps of what a losing candidate in democracy is supposed to do. She called Trump on election night. She attended the inauguration. She, you know, performed all those rituals because she believes in the democratic order. So that's why I think it's notable that she is now saying this. On the other hand, it's kind of meaningless. The, the Constitution has no provision for there is no such thing as challenging the uh, legitimacy of an election, you know, a year after the the election happened. She could talk about it, but it doesn't really mean anything, um, the way you do that is through the impeachment process. Right. Uh, I mean, even were Robert Mueller to conclude and to report that, in fact, there was, uh, we know the Russian Russian attempts to interfere, but there was actually collusion between the Trump team and the Russians. Trump would still be the president of the United States, absent impeachment. Right. Correct? 
there's 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 a, there's no annulment in the American system. There's only divorce. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and there's no recount. Well, no, uh, yeah, yeah. At least With that that ship has sailed long ago. <laughs> yeah. Once yeah. once the election is certified, uh, which you know happens in late December, that's that that's it. The election is over, uh, and then you deal with it through you know other means. Right. Um, so uh, having read the book, um, who it, who was responsible for the fact that she lost? Was it Bernie Sanders? Was it James Comey? Was it the Russians? Was it Joe Biden? Jill Stein? Um, Chuck Todd? Uh, a little, literally, according to her, all of the above. Uh, she she might rank. Uh, you know, she she loves hot sauce, so maybe she'd give three hot sauce bottles to to James Comey, two hot sauce bottles to the Russians, one to. Bernie Sanders and one to Jill Stein and maybe one or two to the media uh, for for how neg- how big they impacted her. The the one person that comes in or the one entity that comes in for more criticism than anyone else in her book is Comey, and she explicitly says that she believes, but for his letter on October was it twenty eighth uh, of last year, suggesting that the investigation had been reopened, but for that letter she would be the president uh, today, despite. The Russians, Bernie, the media, everything else, and the polls indicate there's some validity to that. Is I mean, in terms of the trend was turning, or the undecideds were turning toward her, right, and, and then stopped. I mean, I, th- I think we'll we'll be um, debating this uh, when the, right. the the seventeenth when the single seventeenth single payer repeal bill uh, is still being <laughs> debated in Congress. But yes, there is some evidence to support that. People like Nate Silver uh, have said that she's right about that but you know it's uh people will argue very strongly either way on that one now i'm sure you're already making your travel plans for 2020 uh <laughs> <laughs> there's next week in iowa the the steak fry it's it's happening yeah is I'm, it next, I'm not going but is it already next it's week it's already next week yeah okay so uh are there going to be more candidates than people there it, it seems just about that way yeah uh and so far we're we're like starting with the the lower tiers uh no offense yeah. to to these candidates but the big guns have stayed away uh so we're getting Seth Moulton the congressman from Massachusetts he's coming out there uh Jeff Merkley who you know the yeah. only senator to endorse Bernie Sanders he's been out to Iowa Tim Ryan the congressman from uh-huh. Ohio has been out there uh the Elizabeth Warrens the, Bernie did make one trip to Iowa but mostly they've stayed away so far right uh, I, I've heard a lot of my Democratic friends are already already lamenting the fact that there are going to be so many Democratic candidates running for president <laughs> that we may have to have three tiers for the debates, you know. Right. Uh, a, a varsity, a JV, and a, a middle school or something like that. Uh, Alex Seitzwald stays with us. Um, oh, that's right. We got, I'm sorry. Uh, I, I get got the time wrong here. How long have I been doing this show? We do have a little <laughs> more time before we have to take 11 years. Yeah, but... Um, but it, it the field is that wide because I think a lot of people are hoping and looking for somebody to emerge outside of Washington D.C. Yeah, I, a governor, maybe a mayor. Yep, absolutely. And there's a lot of people uh, in the party that I've talked to who are very sympathetic to that point of view. I'm personally, I'm, I I think there's an argument to be made for it strategically. Uh, it's a wide open field. It, it, this is really unusual. Like, let's just pull back for a second. For the last few elections, you have to go back to 1992 until you get a party that was really 
this wide open when your former boss, Jerry Brown, mm-hmm. uh, and Bill Clinton were, were some of the finalists. But since then, there's been, you know, a Clinton uh, on, on the ticket, including in 2008 when she was supposed to be the, the front runner then, and then Obama cleared the way. Uh, or, you know, there's been some front runner. Uh, Al Gore was, was clearly that person in, in 2000. Right. Kerry, Dean, the, the, you know, it, so this is a wide open, just completely um, free field. The Obamas are gone. The Clintons are gone. There's no big stars. There's a few big stars in the Senate, but there's no one that stands, you know, head and shoulders above the rest. Uh, and uh, everybody looks at Donald Trump and they say, if he can be president, I can be president. So that lowers the threshold for who's looking at it. And uh, they think that they've got a good shot because they think Trump is going to, you know, he might not even be in the White so everybody is looking at this. Uh, and when you talk about governors, I mean, like I had this conversation last night with some friends, Jay Inslee from Washington State, John Hickenlooper from Colorado, Terry McAuliffe, yep. Virginia, uh, and some people even talking about Eric Garcetti, mayor of Los Angeles. Yeah, who's who just got the Olympics to uh, come there. He's a he's a right. rare and has been to New Hampshire. Has been to he. That's right. He has he, he has been to New Hampshire. So he's, watch out. Yeah. I, I I think that's right. Though. I mean, these you know the sen- the people that we all talk about the Elizabeth Warrens, the Kamala Harris, mm-hmm. great. But they it, I I what what can you really do in the minority? You know, you voted against uh, Trump's cabinet right. appointees like Gillibrand, nice. But uh, somebody like a like a governor or a mayor can show a stronger record of accomplishment. They can run against Washington. They can run against their own party in a way that uh, members of Congress can't. And in this kind of mood, I think that might be really appealing to a lot of people. And the big battle right now, as you mentioned at the very top of the hour, is uh, another move yet, yet again, to repeal Obamacare. You thought it was dead? Uh-uh. Things have a way of coming back from the dead around the, uh, around the Congress. Andrew Desiderio from the Daily Beast joins uh, us, Alex and me here, and all of you on the Bill Press Show. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Does anything need to change for the president to be comfortable putting his name on the bill? Well, I don't, I mean, I don't think the Obama administration didn't label it Obamacare. Download our podcast, search for The Bill Press Show on iTunes, and remember to rate, review, and subscribe. This is The Bill Press Show. Live video, Bill's commentary, the best clips from the show, all in one place. YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Here we are with all of you, The Bill Press Show, Tuesday, September 19. Again, great to see you, and thank you so much for joining us as we come out to you live coast to coast on YouTube, YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show, on Free Speech TV, and on the great WCPT out in Chicago. Brought to you today by the United Steelworkers and their international president, the one and only Leo Girard. The United Steelworkers is North America's largest industrial union, representing over 1.2 million active and retired members. We salute them, thank them for the support of the program. A great political discussion here with Alex Seitzwald, political reporter for NBC News. Um, about to get even better, Alex, here by adding uh, Andrew Desiderio from the Daily Beast. Uh, Andrew, nice to see you. Great to be here. Uh, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. I want to start with something we haven't talked about yet. B 
big election on Tuesday in Alabama. That's right. And on the ballot, it is Donald Trump versus Steve Bannon. <laughs> Essentially. Trump yeah. versus his base. Yeah. Right. Yep. You've been down you've been reporting on this. What I have. This is first of all, this is the primary when the general election is Well, this is the runoff, the primary. It's a runoff, I'm sorry. Month. Runoff. Yeah. But the general mm-hmm. election is not until December, I December. believe. December. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's uh Donald Trump supporting Luther Strange and Steve Steve Bannon supporting Roy Moore. What's it look like? I can't for the life of me understand why the president is actually going down to Alabama and expending his political capital on this. Uh, Strange is down by double digits in a lot of polls. We're only a week out from Election Day. Obviously, Trump is a big star down there, and he has a lot of star power um, and a lot of influence, but I'm not sure what uh, a last-minute trip a few days before the election can do to turn the tide on something that is, I think, almost decided at this point. Uh, And and Luther Strange is is not only... um, the Trump-backed candidate, he's the McConnell-backed candidate. And I can see Donald Trump getting really upset even more with McConnell and sort of the Republican establishment here in Washington uh, if Luther Strange ends up losing and losing big to Roy Moore. Uh, Alex, it would be unusual if any president had sufficient coattails to pull a candidate up in the last three days by double digits. Yeah, and wouldn't it? If if anyone could anywhere, it would be Donald Trump in Alabama. Of course, a super Republican state. He won every single county in the primary last year. But he's backing the wrong candidate for his coattails to really matter. Mm-hmm. Roy Moore is the anti-establishment, super conservative guy. He's, he's the, sort he, of the Trump candidate. He's the, he's the mm-hmm. the Trump candidate in this race. Absolutely. No question. Uh, I mean – it, it's it's hard to even say that because you you watch a Luther Strange ad who's the estab- the quote unquote establishment candidate and you would think he was the most Trumpiest candidate of all time but then you watch a Roy Moore ad and you're like oh that's even Trumpier than I possibly could imagine anything could be Trumpy uh, and so but every Trumpy. conservative <laughs> every conservative figure in the country from you know from Sarah Palin to members of Congress have have lined up against Trump's candidate so I think I'm I'm going down there on Thursday. Uh, and I, I'm expecting at this rally on Friday night, people are going to be going out to see Trump, but a lot of them are going to be voting for Roy Moore, the candidate that he's not supporting. Right. Mm-hmm. We heard from uh, Roy Moore uh, yesterday, uh, <laughs> a very, very strange kind of way of talking about the division uh, in this country. The, the audio is a little hard to pick up, but, uh, but uh, here he is. Now we got blacks and whites fighting, reds and yellows fighting. Democrats and Republicans fighting, men and women fighting. What's going to unite us? What's going to bring us back together? A president? A Congress? No. It's going to be God. Going to be God. It's going to be God that brings us all back together because men and women are fighting, blacks and whites are fighting, Democrats and Republicans fighting, reds and yellows? This is the kind of guy Are that, fighting? that Republic, you talk to Republican senators and they do not want someone like this serving alongside them. They view Luther Strange as someone who's, A, not susceptible to making those kinds of gaffes. He kind of flies under the radar on the Hill. Uh, and B, he's going to fall in line. That's why he's the McConnell-backed candidate. Obviously, he's the incumbent, which has a lot of weight on that. But um, they view him as sort of a, a loyal soldier, uh, and so does President Trump in the Senate. View... Loyal, I mean uh, Luther, Strange, Luther Strange as a lawyer, loyal as soldier, loyal and soldier. someone who's basically going to fall in line with the GOP rank and, and file. And Roy Moore will just be 
the uh, the exact opposite. Yeah. Yep. Right. So yeah, Roy Moore is a guy who has been twice elected and twice removed as Chief Justice yes. of the Supreme mm-hmm. Court. Yes. yes. Uh, first for refusing to remove the statue of the Ten Commandments that he had installed on the grounds, mm-hmm. and then the second time for refusing to follow the U.S. Supreme Court ruling on gay marriage. Uh, incredibly religious guy. Uh, he also doesn't seem to have much policy depth. He was asked about DACA and Dreamers recently and seemed totally clueless uh, on them. So the the best argument that I can make, I, I agree, I have no idea why Trump is doing this, but the best argument that I can make is that it's a fairly uh, cheap way for him to send a message to every Republican senator, I've got your back, you know, because at the same time that he's signaling some support for, for primaries uh, against like Jeff Flake, this is a way that he can say, I'm going to support you in general, most of you at least, Um at the same time, at the same time, if he goes down there and Luther Strange loses in double digits, some Republicans are going to say, who cares? Who cares? And can you imagine how Trump himself would react, especially to Mitch McConnell saying, you, you convinced me to back this guy and he's a loser? Yeah. You know? I just I can't imagine how Donald Trump would react, especially in private, to something like that. Right. Because a lot of Republicans are still, it seems to me, trying to figure out how do we you know, how do we position ourselves vis-a-vis Donald Trump going into re-election mm-hmm. into 2018? Yeah. And this could be a little, this is a little test maybe that they could use. And some of them have already decided they'd rather just get out, right, than, than hang around. And I know you've interviewed Charlie Dent. That's right, yeah. Uh, and what, 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 what's his reason? Just not... Well, r- to be fair to him, a lot of a lot of his concerns he's about alone Congress. Either, yeah, he's not alone. A lot of his concerns about the way Congress functions um, predated Donald Trump. He talks about the 2013 government shutdown as something that made him realize, okay, it's getting harder and harder to do the basic things here in Congress: funding the government, raising the debt ceiling, things like that. And he is part of the sort of the pragmatist, the moderate wing of the Republican Party that's willing to buck ideology in favor of getting something done. And that is not really the prevailing attitude uh, among Republicans in Congress these days. Again, that's something that predated, predated Donald Trump. But another thing he acknowledges is that in the last seven months, seven or eight months under the Trump presidency, uh, his sort of thinking about retiring and his discussions with his family about it have sort of accelerated because of what he's seen. Uh, and he feels like the president has sort of exacerbated those worst tendencies uh, among members of Congress. But he, And he's one of what? Three Republicans so far who've announced they're not four, I think. Mm-hmm. So him, Dave Reichert, uh, Dave Trot, and Ileana Ross Leighton, who announced right. a while back, I think in April, that she right. wasn't going to seek re-election. Hers but, was less surprising because she's been there for yeah, yeah. for decades. Um, but but yeah. Alex, these are the kind of people that we sort of counted on to bring some balance to the Tea Party, right? Yeah. You know, the the if you want to call them establishment or kind of mo- or moderate, whatever, but rational, you know. Sane. <laughs> well, Ch- Charlie Dent was always Republicans. Uh, one of these go-to guys for reporters to talk to when you wanted a quote from the other side of the of the Freedom Caucus. There was yep. only yeah. you know Tom Cole is kind of the other one. Uh, so yeah, the the fact so he was in a, a arguably a pretty good position. He was you know he had a platform. He uh, represented a lane of the party that is real, but is. Uh, you know, he had a leadership kind of role in there. And the fact that he's leaving shows how frustrated he is by that. Um, Dave Trott is interesting, too. He this is he's only been in there two terms. He hasn't his pension hasn't even vested as a member of Congress and he's already leaving. Uh, it's not a, you know, Democratic say, uh, seat. It's not a even a 
it's a swing seat, but it's not a, a super swingy seat. It's like Dad McCotter's old seat, right? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. and Carrie Bentivoglio, the, uh, the the Santa Claus impersonator in Congress, is <laughs> for briefly one of my favorite members of Congress. Um, so, so what that tells me, and what you know, people that I've talked to in uh, uh, in both sides, is that there's going to be a lot more retirements coming. If, if Dave Trot is heading towards the exit, uh, if mm. if Charlie Dunn is heading towards the exit, there's there's a lot more coming. Definitely. Right. Uh, so September 30 is the deadline, we know, uh, if Congress is going to do anything under reconciliation to repeal Obamacare. They have to do it by September 30. Uh, and now we have uh, everybody thought it was dead. Uh, the attention was sort of starting to focus on this uh, bipartisan effort by Lamar Alexander and Patty Murray to kind of fix Obamacare when suddenly along come Lindsey Graham and Bill Cassidy with this bill to repeal Obamacare, does it have a shot? I'd say it has about a 40% chance of passing. I well, some people put, are saying a lot higher than that. Yeah, I, I just, I, I don't think that Rand Paul can be swayed, and I don't think folks like Lisa Murkowski and Susan Collins can be swayed. I talked to both of them yesterday, uh, and they have very serious concerns, not only about the policy, but about, about the process. Um, John McCain's criticisms about the process uh, I think you can put some stock in, but he said the same thing in July uh, and then ended up uh, sort of bucking his party, obviously. But I, I would put it at a, at a 40% chance of, of passing. Wouldn't put anything past Mitch McConnell. He's a very savvy political guy, obviously. But another thing to consider- At least we thought he was. <laughs> yeah, we thought he was, right? Um, but I, I think, and I, I don't know if he's going to make the determination that it's worth- possibly losing even more political capital. He will not want to lose again. Exactly. And and another huge legislative defeat for the president. But another thing is, aside from the September 30th deadline to pass Graham-Cassidy, you mentioned Alexander Murray. That has to be signed into law by September 27th so that these uh, insurers can finalize their contracts with individual states uh, in terms of premiums in 2018. Oh, even before, right? Yeah. Yeah. And that would have have to be signed into law by September 27th. Not just pass. Assuming Trump would sign it. Assuming assuming they roll not. it out this week, assuming the Senate passes it, assuming the House passes it, Yeah. okay, and what? assuming the president signs it. This is it. not going to happen. Right. And this is just a short-term fix. And what you're hearing from a lot of Republicans now is, especially the ones that are willing to vote for Graham Cassidy, they're saying, okay, these efforts might be complementary. On one hand, we want to stabilize the existing program, mm-hmm. Obamacare, right, what we have right now in the short term. But then in the long term, we want to replace it with something like Graham-Cassidy. So I think you can, you're going to see a lot of Republicans over the next few days make the argument that Graham-Cassidy and Alexander Murray are complementary instead of contradictory. But what Senator Murray says is that why would you go vote for the stabilization package and then vote for Graham Cassidy, which would theoretically undercut everything you undercut just voted for? Right. right. So uh, those so, are the two sides. Uh, uh, Alex, isn't it? I mean, it's hard to believe that a Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski, who voted against the first repeal effort, would vote for a bill that everybody says we haven't seen the CBO score yet, but everybody says is worse. Meaning would do more damage uh, to states, particularly that expanded Medicaid, than the first bill. Right. And all of the concerns that they laid out with the earlier versions are, are, are present Are here. multiplied here. Are multiplied here. Yeah, yeah right. absolutely. I mean, yeah. it, it is a, a, uh, a redistribution of wealth from largely red states that did not expand Medicaid 
or excuse me, from from largely blue states that did expand Medicaid, including Maine and Alaska, mm-hmm. even though it's not a blue state, uh, to largely red states that did not expand Medicaid. Right. And so, it also has all the Planned Parenthood defunding uh, and abortion. So provisions. all the states: uh, West Virginia, Maine, California, New York, Ohio, yep. right? Alaska that expanded Medicaid. Even Louisiana. And oh, Senator, and Kennedy, Louisiana. Senator Kennedy had some serious concerns about it. Yeah. Right. Because uh, they expanded Medicaid. Expand. I, I, I didn't realize that Louisiana was on the list. At all. Mm-hmm. They lose the money, and the money goes to states that did not expand right. Medicaid. So yesterday, um, you know, the, the there was a lot, a lot of protest that we saw the first time around with that vote. You know, a lot of citizen activity. Well, let's start it up again. Uh, a group called Save Our Care started running a series of ads yesterday. Uh, here is the one uh, directed toward the voters in Alaska. I'm voting for the people of Alaska. And that's just what Senator Murkowski did when she stood strong and voted against repealing health care, against slashing Medicaid, and against taking away care from people with pre-existing conditions like cancer. Now, partisan politicians are at it again. Yet another repeal bill, but with the same devastating impact on Alaska families. They're pressuring her to cave. Senator Murkowski, we're counting on you to stand strong and vote no on health care repeal. Yeah, there you go. And she was sort of, she was welcome as a hero when she got back to Alaska after mm-hmm. that vote the last time, which she's got to remember that, right? As was Susan Collins. As was Susan Collins in yeah. Maine. Yeah. The uh, the the question is is whether, I, I think Murkowski, I don't, politically, I don't see much changing for her. Mm-hmm. Collins may be a little bit more complicated. She's looking at running for governor. She hasn't made up her mind yet. Yeah, well, Maine loses a billion dollars. Right, but under this bill, but politically, the governor there, Paula Page, who you know we all know, has been ex- worst governor in the country. Uh, uh, I'll let that stand. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, it's true. You, uh, she, he's been extremely critical of uh, from Maine. of uh, Susan Collins and said explicitly that if she runs for governor, this will kill her in a Republican primary. And I think he's probably right about that. Um, so it it just depends on you know how much she's worried about her right flank in in Maine. She would prefer to not have to vote on this at all, obviously. Yeah. Um, and yeah, you talked to her yesterday. What's she saying? Well, she's she's very. She says I'm very concerned about this and that. I'm concerned that we're not having hearings. There's no open amendment process. I'm concerned about the the cuts to Medicaid, things like that. But she wouldn't fully commit to voting no, and she's not going to do that until she knows it's actually going to go to the floor. Yeah, right. So, And another thing I wanted to touch on that that uh, Alex mentioned, which is interesting, uh, the Democratic criticism of this is obviously you're taking money from, from blue states and giving it to poorer red states, right, especially the ones that did not expand Medicaid. That's the exact argument that Rand Paul, of all people, is making against this bill. He mentioned redis- redistribution of wealth, obviously something Republicans hate. That's something that Rand Paul is basically tagging this bill with. This is a huge uh, entitlement this is redistribution of wealth. So it's fascinating to hear someone like Rand Paul adopt every single one of the Democratic criticisms. Uh, he called it a game. He said, I can't imagine how Republicans in California and New York in the House would vote for this. Uh, so it's just fascinating to hear that. Kentucky but, is another Medicaid expansion state, mm-hmm. and, uh, uh, right, state where right. the, the exchanges have actually worked pretty well. All right. So to my knowledge, Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski, neither one of them have actually said how they're going to vote. No. They have not. Rand Paul has. Mm-hmm. And do we take him at his word? I mean, he says he's a Abs- definite no. Absolutely. I, I do take him at his word. He uh, So he had a he held a reporter roundtable okay. yesterday at his office, and he was very vehement. He said, there's really no swaying me on this. Unless it's a completely different bill, I'm not voting for this. So, so 
Uh, we start with 52. Rand Paul, we're down to 51. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can only then, if, if two more, if Lisa right. Murkowski and Susan Collins. You can lose Collins, one more and have the vice president be the correct. tiebreaker. If it loses two more, it's done. Done. All right. So where's John McCain? So McCain's going to be interesting. Uh, he's Yesterday he was very critical of the process. Uh, he said we should have an open amendment process. There should be hearings, things like that, returning to regular order. But on the other hand, Lindsey Graham is his very, very, very close friend. Mm-hmm. Um, and people have been asking him about that. Well, have you talked to Lindsey Graham about this? Is he trying to sway you? Is he trying to press you on this? Um, and I imagine there is a lot of jostling going on behind the scenes about this. Um, so I think it's 50-50 whether, whether he votes yes or no. And I, now we have the governor of Arizona, Alex, who opposed the first bill. I can't figure this out at all. But supports the, Lindsay, the, the Graham, Graham Cassidy. Cassidy bill. Yeah. And does John McCain give a rat's ass what the governor of Arizona thinks? He does. Uh, and Why? Because he just got reelected. Well, but the, the governors run these programs. They, they run Medicaid. Uh, they were mm. instrumental in the, or they, at least they were very um, influential in the earlier versions of this bill. Br- Brian Sandoval, for a minute, the governor of Nevada, mm-hmm. seemed like he was going to cast the decisive vote on, even though he doesn't actually have a vote on this bill, <laughs> but because Dean Heller was said that he was going to vote, yeah, basically, yeah. however... Uh, Sandoval said, so uh, a lot of these uh, senators who are on the fence are looking towards their governors. That doesn't mean that McCain is going to vote necessarily that way, but it removes one more um, excuse or one more obstacle that McCain would have for not voting for it. But again, wouldn't it be difficult, uh, Andrew, for McCain, having cast that dramatic vote the last time against the first repeal, to come back? Yeah. Especially when some of his criticisms then are the same criticisms he's yeah, giving now yeah. to the bill. Um, and I think I think he's going to have a very long thought process on this if it ever comes to the floor, which, again, is still an open question. Hmm. Uh, the other thing, so we're here with uh, Andrew Desideria from Daily Beast uh, and Alex Seitzwald from NBC News. Um, the other thing that still this town is still buzzing about uh, is the big deal – uh, that Donald Trump struck struck with Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer, his new BFFs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Chuck that, and Nancy. Chuck and Nancy. Chuck and Nancy. Thank you, Chuck and Nancy. Uh, and that bill, or that deal, right, the, the very next day. Thank you very much, Nancy. Chuck, appreciate it very much. <laughs> Did, didn't mention Paul and Mitch who were sitting right there. No, thank nope. you, Nancy. Thank you, Chuck. But that deal, as we know, the ne- the very next day passed the Senate, then the next day passed the House. He signed it into law. So are there other deals in the works? Well, uh, on that specific deal, a lot of uh, anti-repeal activists were actually very furious with Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi because by cutting this deal, you gave Republicans a window here at the end of the month to possibly repeal Obamacare. Um, so that's something that they're not forgetting. And then with the introduction of the Medicare for All bill, obviously – uh, the some of the activists are blaming Bernie Sanders and company for kind of taking the oxygen out of the room on the anti-repeal efforts uh, as threats to the Affordable Care Act are persisting, basically. Um, so a lot of Democrats and Democratic activists are not very happy that this deal was cut. Uh, and we saw yesterday with Nancy Pelosi getting heckled. They're not really uh, thrilled with the fact that uh, Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer might continue to work with the president uh, and and cut these deals. I think the next one that could be down the line in terms of that might be something on DACA, um, but nothing is is really inked on that. My my understanding is, uh, and I believe Nancy Pelosi has said this, that 
she and Schumer are interested in more than DACA because DACA is eight hundred thousand, but Dreamers are like one point two million or mm-hmm. something. So they want to they want the whole cover of the whole Dreamers and right. They was, want the Dream Act. It was ironic, if we can, Jamie, just uh, when uh, Leader Pelosi yesterday addressing a group uh, a, a group to talk about the Dreamers in San Francisco wasn't even able to speak mm-hmm. because of the protests. Here's, here's what it sounded like. Okay, you've asked your question. I'm going to respond. So she's there on their side. They don't see it, see it that way. They think she's about to compromise. They don't know what it's going to be. Uh, what do you think, Alex? Uh, the key uh, thing to me here in all of this this deal talk uh, is what is the base of each party going to allow? And so far, we've paid more attention to what the Republican base is going to allow because there's a lot of noise around the when they made mm-hmm. that maybe DACA deal from Laura Ingram and Breitbart. But I actually don't think those people are representative of the Republican base that matters. Um, if you talk to Republican members of Congress, like even like Mark Meadows, the chairman of the Freedom Caucus, he was pretty sanguine about the whole thing. He wasn't happy about it, but he wasn't upset. Mm -hmm. The bigger challenge, I think, is going to be on the left and those people right there who you heard from who are going to demand a a, a full Dream Act from from Nancy Pelosi. They're not going to take a a half loaf. And even, you know, um, members of the Congressional Hispanic Caucus, Democrats, people who who are friendly with Nancy Pelosi, who are allies of leadership. uh, One of them told me that she's on a short leash was the term that he used in in dealing anything with the president on this. They just don't trust him to follow through. They don't trust him Mm -hmm. if you cut a deal with him that he's actually going to deliver on what he uh, And Andrew, there are also Mm -hmm. questions about when he says massive Border security measures. Right. And and general border security is something that is, is usually a bipartisan uh, mm-hmm. idea in Congress. But what a lot of these activists are saying is that don't tie anything to this. We just want this to be clean, right? And right. I think what they have to realize is that you have a Republican House, Republican Senate, Republican President. It's yeah. hard. And we've got to realize we're out of time. All right. <laughs> hey, guys, it's so great to see you both. Thanks, Andrew. Follow Andrew at uh, DailyBeast.com and Alex Seitzwald at NBC.com. Have a great day, folks. Come back and see us again tomorrow. We'll be looking for you. This is The Bill Press Show.